Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. We're working on our anxiety and depression literature overview on steroids. Uh, The goal here is that if you suffer from anxiety and depression, or if you know someone that does and they go to a practitioner, the practitioner may know, you know, two, three percent of all the known treatments. Uh, What if we're able to do a massive review of, let's say, 5,000 plus sources and come up with 20 percent of all the possible treatments? Uh, if so, it would be a home run on top of a home run for sufferers. So that's the goal of the project. Uh, to find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, Heather Guidon. She's what's uh, designated a BCPA, a board-certified patient advocate, which is a new designation for what she does on the topic of endometriosis. That appears to be like a very highly sought-after specialization. She's part of the Center for Endometriosis Care, and we're going to talk to her today. So, Heather, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Well, good. Tell me about endometriosis. How did you and it start seeing eye to eye? Like what what happened years ago for you to get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, without centering myself too much, because I know we want to talk about the disease at length, I not only work in endometriosis, but I am also a survivor. You know, my symptoms started probably... I would say very young, probably around even the age of 10 or so. Um, so we're talking premenarchal before first period. And they really came about more GI related than anything else at that stage in the game. As the years progressed, you know, after I started menstruating, I really noticed that everything was just so cripplingly painful. But as many menstruators do, I just chalked it up to, you know, that's how it's supposed to be. Uh, And it wasn't until about 10 years down the road when I really, uh, I was really debilitated by the disease. It was interrupting my work, really taking over my life. I 
presented to a gynecologist. Um, and I'm, I'm one of the very lucky ones. I, I do want to preface that because most people will go through an average of 10 to 12 years delay in diagnosis and about five physicians before they're taken seriously and are able to obtain a diagnosis. I was lucky in the sense that I was able to get diagnosed, you know, in the 80s, it was laparotomy, not laparoscopy. So I had a pretty invasive surgery at that time. And he said to me, okay, you've got this disease, endometriosis. And that was kind of it. And I kind of said, okay, well, you know, where do we go from here? And he said, okay, you know, and again, this is the late 80s. There's, you know, not not a lot of advances back then. We're just going to keep you on the pill. Oh, well, after about two to three more years of that... I really said, you know what, this is this is not working for me. And it was kind of then that I really made the transition, both personally and professionally, really to try to get answers, not just for myself, but so that I could use my passion and my persistence to help the ones who come behind me. Unfortunately, you know, now decades later, I, it's it's hard to say that we've seen much progress, unfortunately. You know, folks that are, are coming in behind me are still going through multiple surgeries as I did, multiple medical therapies as I did. A lot of stigma, a lot of invalidation, a lot of trivializing of symptoms and, and minimization of the disease. So that's that's really what drives my work. It's difficult because you want to fix things for everybody, but endometriosis is is pretty fraught by myths and misinformation and a lot of resistance to progress, unfortunately. Well, what what are the symptoms of endometriosis and, you know, who has characterized the disease and what's their characterization sound like? Absolutely. So first, the definition, the correct definition of endometriosis is a disease that's characterized by the presence of endometrial-like tissue found in the extrauterine environment. And you will hear me emphasize and make that distinction of endometrial-like because the tissue that comprises an endometriosis lesion is not identical to the native endometrium. Uh, You know, there's sort of an older mindset that says they are identical tissues. Hence, we can just simply remove the uterus in a person who is suffering and they'll be cured. And none of that is true. You know, there are a lot of differential biomolecular properties. The tissue is very dissimilar, but it does somewhat resemble it. So we have characterized it in our community as endometrial-like. What happens is it results in, wherever these lesions are, it results in this really systemic inflammation process of angiogenesis, which is laying down new blood supply, lots of adhesions and scar tissue, fibrosis, uh, nerve infiltration, all of these things that contribute to really not just localized pain, but as I said, a body-wide pain, very systemic pain. And it can be chronic. You know, it used to be believed that endometriosis only caused painful periods, which is why I sort of hearkened back to the menstrual reference earlier. But endometriosis is a chronic disease, and it can affect the sufferer at any time in their cycle. You do not need to have a uterus to have endometriosis. You may be post-hysterectomy, post-menopausal. You may not menstruate for whichever reason. You can have endometriosis despite suppressive medication, and unfortunately, you can have it after surgery, but I I know we're going to talk a little bit about the differences in surgery as well, so I'll, I'll hold off on that. Symptoms are not just painful periods, although that's very common. And it is sort of a quote-unquote hallmark. But really, we need to look at the other spectrum of endometriosis. Things like GI disturbances, painful bowel or bladder movements, nausea, vomiting, painful sex, difficulty wearing a tampon, painful urination, uh, as I said, GI disturbances, 
you know, you may feel um, like a sense of IBS. Some people are misdiagnosed with and chronic pelvic pain, of course. And when endometriosis is located in what is called the extra pelvic form of the disease, you can have things like a collapsed lung if endometriosis affects your lung or your diaphragm, for wow. example. So there's, um, you know, there's a whole spectrum. Those are just some of the more common ones. There really is a, a whole spectrum. Infertility is common in about 40 to 50% of people with endometriosis. You know, it's uh, it's a life-altering disease, honestly, and and the burden on both the affected individual as well as our healthcare system is is really staggering. Yeah, I didn't realize it was so uh, pervasive. Absolutely, the, yeah. Yeah, I think the most important thing you said is that it's endometrial-like tissue. So I yes. guess, unfortunately, there's probably hundreds of thousands of women that have had their uterus removed, and maybe maybe they didn't need it to happen, or it didn't Absolutely. happen at least. Absolutely. No, you're 100% right. Um, You know, oftentimes, and and this speaks to the informed consent process, oftentimes they're told that a hysterectomy or an oophorectomy will cure them. And I can tell you in my center alone, we treat countless patients post-hysterectomy, post-oophorectomy who have very florid endometriosis and who benefit from removal of the disease. So what, um, is it like neoplasms, like new tissue being formed or... It it's not necessarily new tissue per se, but it is this this extra uterine growth, uh, these extra uterine lesions, which really take on a life of their own. You know, they're very hormonally responsive. Um, they form their own blood supply. They bleed into the surrounding area. They exude uh, inflammatory substances. And they're very, very difficult to treat, unfortunately. I know a lot of folks think that any OBGYN can treat endometriosis, and that's just simply not true. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. You know, you really want to be referred, if you can, to a high-volume center that focuses on the disease because those are the people that are doing the most surgeries. They're doing it correctly through excision and not just burning the disease and leaving it behind. And they are doing so much of it that, of course, they're going to be the most skilled at doing it, which speaks, of course, not only to outcomes, but importantly, rates of complications. So you really want to look for somebody who doesn't deliver babies Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and dabbles in endometriosis on Thursdays and Fridays. You really need specialty attention. And that's one of the things that we're working towards is trying to establish endometriosis surgery as a true subspecialty. And that will help also with with the reimbursement, significant reimbursement issues that exist in endometriosis as well. It sounds like a a cousin of cancer. I mean, it seems to have a lot of the hallmarks of cancer. Well, 
Interestingly enough, um, I mean, endometriosis is not a cancer. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I don't want any listener to be alarmed and think immediately, I know I have cancer. It is largely a benign disease. However, with that said, a lot of current data exists and there are a lot of ongoing studies that show that there are some shared and underlying pathology uh, that kind of intersect with malignancies and endometriosis. And there's also, unfortunately, a very small but an existing rate of malignant transformation and a slightly increased risk of certain cancers in some individuals. So yeah, it's it's definitely more than just a painful period. Well, histologically, does it have preferences, the endometriosis for certain tissues more than others, the metropism or, you know, if you no, compare I mean, cancer, how does it look? I mean, typically we will see endometriosis and most people will have endometriosis in the abdominal pelvic region. We're talking ovaries where it forms very large sacs or fluid-filled cysts, which are sometimes also called chocolate cysts, which is really terrible. Um, those are called endometriomas. Uh, so it's, it's affecting the ovaries, the rectovaginal septum, the area between the vagina and the bowel, the pelvic sidewalls, of course, you know, the bladder, the kidneys, and the bowels. Typically, you know, we see it there in varying stages, and that means stage one through four, how deeply invasive and how widespread the disease is. Uh, so people refer to it as stage one, two, three, or four. Um, and it can vary in, you know, from patient to patient. And stage is also, I want to really point out, stage is not indicative of the symptom profile or how much pain that individual has. So in other words, I had stage four. That doesn't mean my pain was any more relevant or mattered more than someone in a stage one. So that's really important to point out too. Uh, so we typically see it in the abdominal pelvic regions. However, there are countless cases of extra pelvic disease. You know, the saying uh, by the Extra Pelvic Not Rare Foundation is, we are extra pelvic, not rare. It's just underdiagnosed in places like the sciatic region, the lungs, the diaphragm. I mean, and there's some even some crazy unique case reports of endometriosis of the eye, the back of the knee, on the spleen. So it, it really is just uh, quite quite an interesting and bizarre disease. But typically, again, you know, we're talking pelvic organs. How does the, uh, the histology of the disease or the pathology change with a woman's cycle? Does it cycle to the tissue growth and appearance? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, you know, that's a matter for debate, and, and that has been up for debate for eons, honestly. Some folks will say it swells and bleeds and, and increases in pain during periods, and that may very well be true, but then again, you have that post-hysterectomy or that non-menstruating patient who also has very exacerbated disease. So it really just depends and I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but some things could exacerbate it, uh, whether it's endocrine disruptors or things of that nature. But, you know, it doesn't really change too much based on where it is or, or in whom it is. It really has the potential in any patient in any form to really wreak havoc on, on their whole being. Yeah, I just figure if scientists could identify if it cycles as a woman cycles, then maybe they can capitalize on different treatments at different parts of the cycle that would work better. 
Yeah, I mean, some of the work that's going on now in the clinical research space are things like biomarkers. Unfortunately, there's been over 100 attempts to find a really valid biomarker uh, that would permit and facilitate non-invasive diagnosis, which would be wonderful. Unfortunately, none of them have proved productive outside the clinical space. But we do see sometimes things like elevated uh, CA125 or CA99 or some certain other biomarkers that may or may not be elevated in some folks with endometriosis. Metriosis. We're, we're going there. We're in that direction. We're working towards it. We're not there yet. Do men ever get it? Actually, yes. I'm glad you asked. Um, there are about 25 case reports in the scientific literature of uh, cis males who have been diagnosed with endometriosis. Uh, some of them were on hormone therapy for prostate cancer. Not all of them, uh, which is also very interesting. Uh, has anyone looked to see if there's a, uh, a localized microbiome associated with some of the lesions, like swabs? That, some yes. of them looked. That's that's also an emerging area of research. Folks are really looking into that now. Um, the literature is very scant. It is a growing body of work. We're starting to maybe see a small connection. Nothing to crow about yet. But again, it's it's sort of one of those things that we're all keeping an eye on and hoping for excellent developments in the very near term, uh, because I think that would unlock some of the mysteries as well. And also, you know, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but it may also lead to treatments in one way or another. Yeah. Well, what are some of the treatments right now? And are there any that actually work even on some level? Yeah, you know, there's there's quite a few. They range, in the most simplest of terms, they range from uh, surgery to hormone suppression to alternatives to a combination of all. Now, with surgery, the most effective surgery option that is out there is laparoscopic excision. With laparoscopic excision, you are providing a biopsy-proven diagnosis, and you're also excising, removing down to clean margins, the disease at the same time in the same surgical encounter. There is another surgery which is more commonly done outside the selected centers of expertise in endometriosis, which is ablation, not to be confused with endometrial ablation, which is a different procedure inside the uterus, but ablation of endometriosis lesions. Unfortunately, although it's so commonly done, it's highly ineffective, and it can also be very dangerous because what happens is not only are you leaving disease behind, but you're burning the tissue, and so you're laying down thermal damage. So that in and of itself can cause pain and issues postoperatively. So it's really, really important that we differentiate between the types of surgery and the surgeons because... Not all surgeons are created equal. Not all surgery is created equal, but you can do a surgery to offer a biopsy proven diagnosis and a validating confirm, uh, confirmed diagnosis. Sometimes after surgery or, or, you know, if you don't want to do surgery and you opt via informed consent, you opt to do a course of hormone therapy, you might try something like an oral contraceptive. Uh, some of the bigger and more powerful drugs which should not be used in undiagnosed patients are things like GnRH analogs. No drug has been proven better than the other. Some are better tolerated and more affordable. Uh, some have less side effects. So it, it really depends on the patient and which direction they want to go in. Uh, but what's really critical here is is not so much which route you're choosing 
choosing, but that you are getting the information you need to make an informed decision and an empowered decision about your care. There is a role for hysterectomy in endometriosis, uh, particularly if you have, if you're someone who has adenomyosis as a secondary pain generator, which is the infiltration of endometrial tissue into the myometrial lining of the uterus. It's a very, very painful disease. I suffered from both, so I can tell you firsthand. It is pain of uterine origin, so and it's confined to the uterus, so if you take out the uterus, you are curing the adenomyosis. You're not curing endometriosis. But for some folks, hysterectomy may be an option. Again, hearkening back to uh, informed consent. Unfortunately, hysterectomy is too often touted as a cure, which it is not. In fact, I think over 100,000 Last, last I checked, it was 100,000 hysterectomies that were being performed for diagnosis and treatment, quote-unquote treatment, of endometriosis. But studies have found that there's a 15% or more chance of pain worsening after hysterectomy and, and the disease persisting. But again, it's a conversation between the individual and their doctor if a hysterectomy is right for them. And then we're talking adjuncts, things like you know alternative therapies, Certain supplements, things like curcumin or maritime pine bark, we hear a lot about. Again, not too widely used outside the clinical research setting. Pelvic floor therapy is a big one. Uh, we highly recommend it in a lot of our patients because often what we find is that endometriosis does not come alone. I mentioned adenomyosis earlier, but it also comes with oftentimes things like pelvic floor dysfunction or pudendoneuralgia or other disorders that can be treated through specialized pelvic floor therapy. So that's a really good one, a really good option. And these are things that can be done in conjunction with surgery. Uh, we recommend pelvic floor therapy after the disease has been removed. Others may try it prior to surgery. It's totally up to them. What is, what is pelvic floor therapy? So that's where you have um, specialized providers who focus specifically on, uh, they are doctors of physical therapy, who focus specifically on things like pelvic floor dysfunctions, where, you know, you may have a, a tight pelvic floor, or you may have anatomic distortion, or you may have um, nerve issues, either as a result of or in addition to endometriosis. They can help with that through internal manipulations and other physical therapy approaches and it, it's just really very, very helpful. And I encourage everybody to look into it, you know, whether whether they've had 18 surgeries or not, or, or if they're doing well, I think physical therapy can help everybody. You know, everybody's probably a candidate, at least for an early interview and investigation to see if they think it will help them. So you can use all of these things, you know, surgeries, drugs, alternatives, PT, or you can do nothing. Do nothing is also an option. Uh, for some folks, and endometriosis doesn't take over their life and that's wonderful and they are not having any ill effects they're not having progressive disease uh, sort of interrupt their life or you know their their physical functioning and their their organs so that that's an option too has anyone explored dietary interventions are there sure. certain diets that can yep. slow it or slow absolutely it? yeah I mean with diet you know we kind of say there's no endometriosis diet per se because you'll see that a lot oh I did the endo diet I didn't feel any better well what is that you know there's there's a lot of different preferences different allowances that people can have if, for example if someone is uh, gluten-free or if someone is vegan I mean you know you really have to personalize it 
but I would think the general rule of thumb, you know, is, is try to eliminate sort of toxic ingredients, things like processed, highly processed foods. There are some studies that have linked an exacerbation of endometriosis symptoms to red meat. So you might want to look into eliminating that from your diet, but it really is, is a tried and true personalized approach. Jessica Murnane has a great series of books on this. I would look into her, her books also the endometriosis the Summit, which is a fantastic resource. They do a lot of lectures and presentations up to and including diet and nutrition. So there's some good places to look for information on that. You know, I think anytime that you are doing a healthful approach, you are sort of thoughtful and deliberate about what you're putting into your body. You know, it can only be helpful. It can't be harmful. But again, you know, some folks live in food deserts. Other folks can't afford to really to buy organic and, and sort of, uh, you know, exotic ingredients and things. So you really have to personalize it uh, and find what works for you. And then the way the uh, disease progresses, does it progress evenly on both sides of the body? Or do people seem to have a preferential side where the left fallopian tube where the left side of their body is affected more than the right? I mean, that depends. We, we do see... You know, preponderance, say, for lung endometriosis, for example, there may be a preponderance uh, for more disease distribution on the right side. Others may have more pelvic disease on the left side. So it, it really kind of depends on the person and how the disease is affecting them, but also how, how their treatments have been. So in other words, like with me, I had multiple failed surgeries before my own excision. You know, there was an abundance of disease left on my left kidney, for example, but my right kidney was quote unquote, okay. So it really depends on who has treated you and when, you know, it, it depends like so much about this disease. It's, it's really so personally specific to that individual. And again, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to scare people, but some aspects of it do seem a little bit similar to cancer. I mean, uh, does the endometrial tissues or whatever tissue it is, does it seem to start in certain places and then spread consistently to other places or does it is it more random in how it moves it's not that it's random per se but it also doesn't spread like wildfire like like you know people say daisies in a field it doesn't spread that way it's largely a static disease much of the scientific literature shows that where the disease is is where it will be in other words if i have rectovaginal disease at surgery one and it's not treated properly and I go in at surgery number two, that disease is still there, but it hasn't gone throughout my body like wildfire. So it's largely a static disease. And that's why we see such lower recurrence rates and persistence rates after excision versus when the disease is just sort of topically burned or left behind. Now, of course, with that said, does that mean no person with endometriosis has ever had their disease spread? Sure, of course not. Uh, but by and large, you know, speaking in general terms, we see it as a static disease. What you have is what you have. The lesions, do they become large or do they stay like small, but you have a whole bunch of them? Like, you know, no, they again, can. histologically, sure. what does it look yeah. like? They can, they can become very large, um, particularly in the cases of endometriomas, which, as I mentioned earlier, are the, the cysts on the ovaries. 
that are filled with endometrial debris. They can become larger and more invasive and more fibrotic over time, but they, there is sort of an evolution to lesions, and what I mean by that is it may start out as a clear vesicle or what just looks on the pelvic sidewall like an area of torsion, and that may progress over time. It may become flame-like, it may become blue, it may become red, it may, you know, may end up being burned, what they call burned out disease, um, which is sort of black and brown. So there is, in a lot of cases, an evolution to the appearance of the lesion, but more importantly, it can also become more painful over time. And, you know, that's when we're talking things like negative impact on the kidney. There's been cases, reports of uh, silent kidney loss. There's cases of bowel obstruction things like that where it's invading the actual organ and causing more than just dysfunction. It's, it's causing very threatening complications of the disease. Well, very good. Uh, Heather, what's the best place for people to find out more and to, to track what's going on with endometriosis? Where do they go? Oh, there's some great resources out there. You know, obviously, Center for Endo, uh, excuse me, centerforendo.com is the Center for Endometriosis Cares website. You know, we really try to keep people up to date on kind of the literature and, and what's going out, uh, you know, uh, what's going on out there in, in the world of endo. We do try to keep people informed because there are so many myths and, and misinformations out there about this disease and its treatments. Um, so definitely stop by our website, centerforendo.com. Endometriosis Summit uh, is a fantastic uh, year-round resource, but they also put on an incredible conference once a year. And I highly encourage everyone to seek that out. Endo Invisible, which is a nonprofit foundation for endometriosis. Several surgeons and centers, including our own, have donated surgeries to that organization uh, to help folks get past those some of those barriers uh, of, of access to care. Plus, they keep everybody updated on the disease. Extra Pelvic Not Rare Foundation is phenomenal because it's the first and only foundation that really focuses on uh, exactly that, extra pelvic disease, uh, whether it be sciatic or thoracic or diaphragmatic, what have you. Um, they are also conducting a research study, which is really important. Um, so yeah, extra pelvic, not rare. Fem Truth, one word, Fem Truth, is a fantastic um, organization based out of California, working internationally towards um, really the legislative and politicized aspects of endometriosis uh, with a very strong youth component. That's really just fantastic. Endo Girls Blog, and these are all on, you know, all forms of social media. Endo Girls Blog really is out there debunking myths and misinformation and providing information. Uh, Jessica Murnane has Know Your Endo. Those are her books. She's also got her social media, I believe, is at Know Your Endo. If I'm not mistaken, I apologize if I am. She's got some great information in terms of, you know, things like diet, nutrition. The Endometriosis Research Center, which is endocenter.org, they really work towards Towards, you know, encouraging timely intervention, proper diagnosis, proper care. Yeah, so there's a host of folks out there who are really working hard every day to, you know, really try to make advancements, not just within the scientific or medical realms, but really 
towards the, the patient centric aspect, uh, you know, advocates that are that are trying to work on really broad initiatives to reduce the disparities in endometriosis, you know, and all of the structural issues that go with it. Well, very good. Well, Heather, thank you for coming on the podcast. And, you know, it sounds like there's a huge need uh, for more information about endo. It really is not well understood from what I can see. So it's thank true. you for coming on the podcast. It is my pleasure, and anybody can get in touch with me anytime at heather at centerforendo.com. I am always happy to help guide anybody that I can. Um, you know, as I said, it, it's it's kind of my life's work and my passion to really make sure that nobody else is still going through what I went through 30 years ago. Uh, and, and we're going to get there. You know, together we're going to get there. Um, there's a lot of motivation and commitment out there in the patient community, and they are the ones that are driving the changes, and it's just so rewarding to see. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.